I'm turning our attention to the book of Matthew this morning, and we're going to be uh, settling down into the first two chapters. And what you need to know about all the gospel authors, there are four gospels. They function as kind of biographies of the life of Jesus, if you will. And they are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, what you need to know about these biographies is that each of the authors has a plethora of material to select from. They're choosing what they're going to include about the life of Jesus. And when they choose to include things in their Gospels, uh, they make these decisions for two reasons. First, they want you to know that a particular event happened. And second, they want to show you how this particular event, or whatever events they've selected, reveal who Jesus is and what he came to do. And Matthew is concerned with showing us, revealing to us, that Jesus is the forever king who has a forever kingdom. That Jesus is a good and mighty king. And so he actually opens his book with a genealogy that the vast majority of you skip when you're reading through the book of Matthew. It's okay, you can admit it. But he does this really interesting thing in his genealogy. You see, it's structured and built around the person of David. It's got uh, 14 generations between each major section. The 14th name on the list is David. And if you are practiced at the Jewish art of, I can't say it right, but geometria, it's some kind of numbers game they played. Uh, you can look at the genealogy and you come up with DVD, which is the consonants of the name David. And the reason that Matthew does this is he's laying out in the genealogy Jesus's credentials for being the king, right? Uh, genealogies used to function a little bit like job resumes do today. And so uh, when somebody was trying to be thrust or get into a particular position, uh, they would share with those others around them their genealogy. And so what you would do is same thing you do on a job resume today. You might cut out the less flattering parts, right? Like your brief stint as a sign spinner outside. You've seen those guys on the side of the road or whatever embarrassing job that you're like, I was there two weeks, it doesn't need to be on my resume. But the interesting thing about Jesus' resume here is we kind of expect it to be a who's who of the Bible. A bunch of people of unimpeachable character. Great, godly fellows. But what, what we find is not that. It's almost as if Matthew has screwed up a little bit. Because what he does is he includes women in the genealogy. And in ancient times, this is a no-no. Uh, women are not, like, like, it would be like putting in your job resume, like, sometimes steals office supplies, right? This is, this is not flattering. Women are not looked upon as full citizens. And in Jesus' genealogy, it's like somebody failed to edit this for Matthew. There are five women, and they are women of ill repute, of questionable character. Women that some have called the bad girls of the Bible, right? You've got, you've got Tamar, who dressed up as a prostitute and tricked her former father-in-law into getting her pregnant so that the Messianic bloodline could continue. You have Rahab, who was a prostitute in the city of Jericho, a non-Jew, and the way that she ends up in here, she becomes part of Israel because she lets some spies that were checking out Jericho spend the night at her house to hide looking for them. That seems questionable now that I say it out loud. You, you have Ruth. She was a little bit better. She was widowed. 
But if you remember, she proposes to Boaz in a field. She sneaks up to him. He's already asleep during the harvest. And she kind of nestles into his uh, sleeping bag and is like, hey, I think you should marry me. And he's like, okay, <laughs> sounds good. Then you have the wife of Uriah. That's Bathsheba. We'll double back to that one. And lastly, you have Mary, who was a virgin who gave birth to Jesus. If you're an outsider or a non-Christian looking at this genealogy, there are a lot of questions. But I think Matthew includes these, these negative parts for a really distinct purpose, which I'll share with you in a second. Because even the most sterling reference in this genealogy, aside from the women, you would think would be David, right? But even David's name is sullied. Right, you go back in Israel, there's no greater figure than King David. He's, he's the one who slayed the giant. He's the man after God's own heart. His is the throne that will be sat upon forever and ever. And instead of just saying that Jesus is in the line of King David, or you know, David fathered Solomon and moving on, there's this little note. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. And what Matthew's doing there is letting us see that even the great King David is sullied by sin. He points out to us in, in, in those, that little phrase, by Uriah's wife, that David was not perfect. He reminds us that David raped, one does not tell a king no, and killed a woman's husband. I should make that sentence better. He, he raped a woman, period, then killed her husband in an attempt to cover it up. He was far from perfect. And what Matthew is doing in showing us this imperfect family that Jesus comes from is telling us two things. He's telling us about the family that Jesus comes for, Messed up people like you and I from messed up families, just like Jesus' family. And he's showing us that we need somebody better than David. Somebody who is everything that David was supposed to be. The true and better David. The true king. Jesus, who is the Christ. The Son of God. Matthew's primary goal throughout his gospel is to cause us to see that Jesus is the king. He's the real king. That's our main idea this evening, is that Jesus is the king. That's what I want you to walk away contemplating, is Jesus' lordship over you. I want to exhort you to adore him. We'll see that Matthew proves to us that Jesus is the king three ways this morning. His virgin birth, the dreams and geography that happen in the life of Joseph, another way might be able to say the fulfillment of Scripture, and then through a star that appears to the, what I learned is pronounced magi properly. I've always said it magi my whole life, but bubble burst. Magi. I'm probably going to screw it up, so you'll have to forgive me. Before we walk through those sections of Scripture, let's pray together for God's help. Father, you are so good to us. We are utterly dependent upon you. We are weak. We are poor listeners. 
Give us ears to hear. Give us your spirit. Lock us into this time that we might hear your word. Keep our minds from drifting. And keep us concentrated on Christ who gave up everything to make us something, something important because we would belong to you through faith in him. God, bless our This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start with the virgin birth. Jesus is the king because he is born of a virgin and is the son of God. Verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ came about in this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together, that's before they had sex or slept together, that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Drop down to verse 25, the latter part of it. She gave birth to a son, and his name was Jesus. What a beginning. God invades human history through the womb of an insignificant virgin girl. God mounts his assaults against the forces of evil, and he begins in an obscure cave that's purposed as a stable. This is not what we expect. Some screaming with blood on his face and tears in his eyes, but it's not because he's come with a sword in his hand and an army at his back. It's because he's come as an infant. This isn't what we expect. We expect the king of kings to be born in a palace and to have great strength. But Jesus comes in great weakness. Not in a palace, but in poverty. Astounds me still that Jesus, God the Son, agreed with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in eternity past that in order to save you and I, because he knew we would screw up, that he would swim in amniotic fluid and nurse at his mother's breast. That in order to save you and I, he would become vulnerable. That he would become killable. Dependent upon, part of his very creation. All of Scripture. The unmade becomes made. The author of creation writes himself into creation's story as the heroine. It's, it's astounding. Like I just none of us can imagine what it would be to step out of heaven and to become a person. I've tried to say it would be like you deciding to become a worm forever, but I think that falls short. It's incredible what God has done to come and save us. Jesus becomes vulnerable so that he can be killed in our place for our sins. And friends, if you want to have a relationship with Jesus, you must become vulnerable with him. You too must die. 
You must die to yourself in order to live to Christ. You must give up the throne of your life, control of your life, lordship of your life, and give it to Christ. You must come to him and vulnerably confess, God, I cannot do this on my own. And I can't do it. I can't take it anymore. I need life. I can't save myself. I can't get to heaven on my own. I, I need you to save me. And Jesus, he's, he's great. He's not going to wag his finger at you and say, told you so. You're right. You're a pile of garbage. No. He's going to say, I love you. I know you fully. I know your guilt. I know your shame. I know your past. I know the evil that has lied within you. I know the thoughts that you've hidden away from everyone else. And I love you still. Still, despite all of that, I don't condemn you. But instead, I climbed into your experience in order to die for you. I became vulnerable for you now you must become vulnerable in order to follow me. Friends, Jesus is worthy of your life. Up to God and confess your need of Him and cast yourself upon His strength. For it is His strength alone that can save you from the penalty of your sin which is the just and holy wrath of God. Jesus is, is fit to be your king and your savior because he is not only fully man, but also fully God. He is the fulfillment of the prophecy that you see in verse 23. The virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus will be God with us and he will be one of us astounding he alone is fit to be king and it's this truth that keeps joseph from divorcing mary because he had his heart set on that until he was interrupted in a dream look with me back at verse 18 the birth of jesus christ came about in this way after his mother mary came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. The virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel commanded him. He married her, but he did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son. And he named him Jesus. Joseph has a decision to make when this angel shows up. 
makes these great proclamations. Mary's He's going to save his people from their sins. You need to stay with her if you're going to be obedient to God's will for your life. And so when Joseph wakes up that morning, he's like, that was a crazy dream. But he also realizes, I have a decision to make. I can be obedient to God here, or I can preserve my sterling reputation. Did you, did you see that? In, in verse 19, Joseph, being a righteous man, doesn't want to disgrace Mary publicly. He's going to divorce her. He's going to show himself to be righteous in this culture by divorcing his wife, who seemingly committed adultery. But God is calling him to give up that reputation and to stay with Mary. It's a shame on our culture. They are going to shame him and Mary because of this pregnancy. People are going to say, she slept with someone else and he stayed with her anyway. I can't believe it. Or, they were together before they were married, told you. Unrighteous. People are going to put them out socially for the rest of their lives. For Joseph to obey God in this dream, he has to kiss his sterling reputation goodbye. And for He too calls you to be willing to kiss your sterling reputation goodbye. We made this application a couple weeks ago, but I want to bring it up again tonight at Christmas Eve. You will have opportunities in the Christmas season to speak with friends and family about Jesus. And some of them will not want to hear what you have to say. And for years you have avoided the topic, talking instead of something that is more peaceful, like politics. Do not avoid the topic. It might cause you awkwardness. It might cause you shame. You might become the black sheep in your family. But it's worth it. Because God might bring revival. God might give faith to those friends of yours, those family members of yours who are still walking in darkness. Speak of Jesus. Be willing to give up your reputation. Family. He's entrusting his family to Jesus, to God. And this is something many of us do not want to do. I think perhaps the biggest idol in American Christianity is our families. We, have a, a, we do this weird thing where we take good gifts of God and we turn them into ultimate things that we worship instead of God. It's perverted. It's messed up. And Joseph here, again, he has a decision. Am I going to entrust my family to God? Because this Jesus guy, he puts everyone at risk. He puts the whole family at risk. And eventually, he's going to get himself killed. And people, even from the time, as we'll see, that he is born, are trying to kill him. And the family has to be on the run. They have to become refugees. And Joseph has to sit down and go, should I do what God has told me and put my family at risk? Or should I do what's best for my family from a worldly perspective? Sometimes what's best for your family for your family in the temporary. Maybe it means giving to a particular cause, uh, more so that your family has less. 
Maybe it's going somewhere overseas where it's dangerous to say that you're a Christian. We need to be willing to follow God anywhere and to trust Him with everything. I wonder, do you? He won't let you down. And though this brings Joseph an inconvenient sort of life, God never lets him down. Look at at all the different things that happen to Joseph. Like, First, God uses Rome as his pawn and calls this census and takes Joseph to Bethlehem so Jesus can be born there in fulfillment of Scripture. Then, after he's born, Herod's trying to kill him, and we read in chapter 2, verse 13. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up. Take the child and his mother. Flee. him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death so that it was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. And then, still not done, still not settled, we read verse 19, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, because those who intend to, intended to kill the child are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets he would be called a Nazarene. Why all this movement in Joseph's life? Like, can't God just make Herod go I'll just put like a force field around Joseph and his family? Yes! So why doesn't he? Oh, because these, these movements, this geography, it's laden with meaning. When we see that Jesus is born of a virgin. That's a, a fulfillment of a promise in Isaiah 7.14. When we see that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, we see that this is a fulfillment of a prophecy spoken by Micah in chapter 5. You can, you can see this part of it in, in verse 6 there. Uh, what happened is uh, Jesus was born and Herod's like, hey, scribes, Pharisees, religious folk, where's the Messiah supposed to be born again? And they quote this passage to him from Micah. And this is, what it says. Now, daughter who is under attack, you slash yourself in grief. A siege is set against us. They are striking the judge of Israel on the cheek with a rod. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, probably not the way you pronounce that. You are small among the... Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of the ruler's brothers will return to the people of Israel. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord, in the majestic name of the Lord his God. They will live securely, 
For then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. He will be their peace. Jesus is born in Bethlehem to signal us to the fact that he is the great shepherd king that is prophesied by Micah. He is the one who will be worshipped by people throughout all the earth, which we'll see in a minute comes even from the Magi. He will be the one who brings peace between man and God. The flight into Egypt, we read in verse 15, out of Egypt I called my son. What we see here, if you're familiar with the Exodus narrative, we walked through the book not too long ago, God calls Israel his son, and he calls them out of slavery and into And they begin to despise God. And so he's saying here, what will be fulfilled out of Egypt I called my son. Jesus is the new and better Israel. He's everything Israel was supposed to be. He's called out of Egypt as God's son, and he will never turn his heart to idols. It's going to be everything Israel should have been. We see here in verse 18, after the massacre of innocence, Herod kills a bunch of children, what we'll talk about in a second, but... uh, Matthew tells us what was spoken through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled in this. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. Rachel is a stand-in for the nation of Israel, and she is mourning over the loss of the exiles. The people of Israel are going, God's promises seem to be lost. We are crushed beneath the boot of the enemy. And in Jeremiah's prophecy, he continues and says, yet you are not without hope. And here we have a similar circumstance. Uh, Children have been killed in this small town, about 20 to 30 of them. And God is saying that your weeping is not a hopeless kind of weeping because God's promise, well, it persists. The promised one still lives. The child who will save the world still breathes air. And then we see lastly, that he lives in Nazareth in order to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, that's verse 23, that he would be called a Nazarene. This one's a little bit trickier. Because if you look in the Old Testament, you're not going to find a prophet say this specifically, that Jesus is going to be called a Nazarene. And so what's going on here is that Matthew is looking back into the Old Testament and he's saying, all the prophets testify to this truth that the Messiah will be despised. He will be persecuted. And what he's doing in identifying Jesus as a Nazarene is saying that he's someone who is despised because the people at the time despised Nazareth. It's the place everybody looks down their noses at. It's like, I try to think of a contemporary equivalent. It would be like saying you're from New Jersey today, right? Gross. I see you, I know. I'm sorry. (laughs) People will despise him and his In John's gospel, in the first chapter, he, he runs up to Nathaniel and he's like, I've found the Messiah, the one to come. His name's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The answer is ultimately yes. But Jesus is it's despised. Also here, it's neat. I don't know if this is what Matthew's trying to do or not. The word for Nazarene or Nazareth 
is very similar to the Hebrew word for branch, which is another designation for the Messiah in the Old Testament. Authors love to pun. I love puns. They're great. Um, But he might be punning a little bit to point us back to the fact that the Messiah is uh, the branch that is to come. Uh, To help you see this, I'm going to read from Isaiah real quick in chapter 11. Uh, This says this, A shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Matthew is, in all of these movements, all of these prophecies that are being fulfilled, shouting one thing, Jesus is who is promised. He's the forever king of the forever kingdom. He's going to sit the forever throne of David. Jesus is the king. You can't help when I read this section noticing, like, (laughs) if Joseph doesn't listen to God, he screws everything up for all of us. Right? It shows how vital it is to listen to God. You know this to be true. Especially if you're married. You know how important it is to listen. And if you're like, me, my wife's not in here right now, so you've been guilty of doing that thing when uh, you know you've, you've got the TV on and you're watching a game, or if you're like me, you're enthralled and maybe playing some video games or reading, and your spouse is just talking to you, and you're listening, but not really. And so what happens is uh, later that day or or the next day, you you ask, you know, hey, was is, when is so and so coming? says, I talked to you about that last night. Weren't you listening to me? Not that any of you know what that's like. I, no, it's just me. Listening is important to a relationship. It's, it's vital. So too with God. We must listen to what he says to us. Often when, when I tell people, how long I preach, I'm met with this response. People can't pay attention that long. Studies show people can only pay attention for like 20 minutes. And I'm like, yeah, why is Netflix so successful? Because, I, hey, I've paid attention for six, seven hours before. Or, you know, I went and saw The, the, the Last Jedi. It was like two, three hours. Nobody seemed distracted in that theater. You can pay attention if you want to listen. Or or maybe you get the response of, uh, I went to such and such a church. On and on and on. And some of you are going, amen, amen. (laughs) But my response to that is this. Was what he was saying true? Was was it faithful to the scripture? Because here's the rub. The Bible exists in a form that is easily ignorable. And its teachers are often boring and uninteresting. But 
if we want to have a vibrant relationship with God. We cannot let this keep us from listening. You want to have your relationship with God thrive. You must listen. You want to hear God speak. Read His Word. You want to know God's will for your life. Read God's Word. You want to... Listen to it. Proclaimed. Talk to your friends about God's Word. Meditate on God's Word because it alone is the wisdom unto salvation. And Paul tells us it's useful for correcting, rebuking, and teaching. And we we might not have angels or great flashy dreams, but Peter tells us we have something more sure, something better than that. He says it's the Bible. He says the Bible is better than if you could jump into a time machine and go back in time and take out your iPhone and record the life of Jesus and then zip back here. He says that the footage on your iPhone isn't as good as the Bible because the Bible alone is God's perfect word. Friends, we must listen to God if we are going to experience the deliverance of God and the joy of God. If you are not, if you're feeling enslaved to sin in your life, if you are feeling captive to a particular situation in your life, let me suggest something. It's because you're ignoring God's voice. God! Listen. And that command is, has another part. Listen and believe. Because not everybody who hears God's voice or his word responds with joy and adoration. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, Magi, or wise men, from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. Just so you know, it's not good form to show up to a king and say, Hey, where's the king? When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes and the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him. Because this is what was written by the prophet. And no means least among the rulers of Judah. Because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. Verse 16, then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, because they don't return to him, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time that he had learned from the wise men. Herod hears the news of the true king's arrival 
if he plots to kill him. He feigns a desire to worship him, but his true desire is to remove him before he's able to walk. Why? Well, because Jesus is a bad dude, right? Uh, History is pretty clear on this. Caesar Augustus said that he would rather be Herod's pig than his son. That's how bad Herod was. He murdered one comes to, he murdered his favorite wife. I don't know what that means, that she was his favorite if he murdered her. He murdered his favorite wife. He arranged the drowning of a cousin. He also hired hitmen to strangle two of his sons. Herod was an evil, evil guy. Listen. Herod is a picture of you. Herod is a picture of us all. See, according to the Bible, the source of evil is right here. It's your heart. It's your obsession with yourself. It's your desire to be your God and to have control of your life. Every one of us. who, When Jesus shows up and says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You have to do life my way. And when he comes and doesn't say, hey, here's a great way you can have peace with God. You can do it on your own. He doesn't say that, but instead says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. The little Herod in us hears that. Hears that we must bend the knee to Jesus and screams, No! This is my life. This is my life and I will do it my way. All of us are in need of a miracle to believe in God. And all of us, apart from a miracle, respond to God in the same way that Herod does with hate. We've mounted a rebellion and said, I'm going to follow my heart, God. Do life my way. And God's a king who won't be scorned. But in his patience... His love for us, he he sent a son to atone for our sins. And and when we see this glorious truth, we learn not to respond as these magi, or not as Herod, but as these magi. And I don't want to ruin things for you here, but the, the magi or the wise men that are in all the nativity scenes, like they shouldn't be there. Like they don't, these dudes don't show up till about two years later, all right? Jesus is a toddler, okay? Also, the star that's in all the nativity scenes, not there, right? It's guiding the, the wise men. Also, it's not December 25th. It wasn't snowing. But these magi, they show up. 
but to tell us about the king that they're coming to worship. Uh, a magi was, uh, uh, they say wise men, but I like to think more of like old school magician. <laughs> like a, they were pagan priests, pagan religious leaders, and they dabbled in just about any kind of occult that you can think of. Uh, they checked out astrology and uh, I don't know, maybe they had Ouija boards. I, I don't know. But, but they're pagans. They don't, don't believe in God. But for some reason, this star shows up and they say, we need to go worship the true king. And so they do. Look at verse 9. Notice uh, verse 9 refers to Herod. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. So it seems as if the star disappeared at some point. It led them to Jerusalem. They talked to Herod. They consult the scriptures. The star alone wasn't enough. And then as they're going to look for Jesus, the star shows back up. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. The the gifts here, they're not laden with symbolism. There's not mystery here. They're simply giving these gifts to honor Jesus as the king. They're pledging their loyalty to him. They're paying homage to him. They're bowing down into worshiping him. And I don't think they had the full implications of what they were doing in their minds as they were doing it. But what's happening here is, well, we'll look back at verse 3. When King Herod hears that Jesus is being born, he's deeply disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. And so the king of the Jews, in the center of Jewish life, Jerusalem, They are disturbed by news of the Jewish Messiah. The rejection of Jesus by his own people is beginning even now. It culminates in Calvary on the cross. But what happens in that is that Gentiles get invited in. God invites not a baby shower it's a coronation they're honoring jesus as king and an awesome note here in the text in verse one of chapter two look look there in the days of king herod you see that king herod now after they worship jesus right away verse 12 and being warned in a dream not to go back to king herod No, Herod. The text will never again call Herod a king. Why? Because the true king has been revealed. They've bowed down and worshipped the true king, the fullness of God, and a helpless baby, swaddled and lying in a manger. Friends, there are two ways to respond to Jesus and his claims of kingship. One is animus and... Friends, Christmas cannot be understood apart from the crucifixion 
Jesus was born so that he might die for our sins and raise for our justification. And Christmas is not properly understood until it has offended you. Christmas says, you are so wicked that nothing less than the death of God himself could save you from your evil. But at the same time, it says, God has loved you so much that he was glad to do it. And so, so here's the, the offensive part. Like, it, Christmas just says you can't do it. You can't make yourself right with God. You need a savior. And so you can either push back like, like Herod to let the little Herod in you rule, or you can worship Jesus like the Magi, Magi. But what you can't do is what I see sometimes. To the world. My voice is bad. It's usually not that bad. But you know, they're not doing joy to the world. Or hark the herald angels sing. Like they, they're, they're singing it, but they're only singing it because they don't understand it. The content of those songs is what led Herod to kill 20 to 30 children. So if they understood the content of those songs, they would understand Jesus is making a claim, saying you can't control your life. You don't get to define yourself. I define you. I am the king. Now bend the knee. You can be overwhelmed with joy at Christ and submit yourself to him. Or you can rebel against him. And if you persist in rebellion against him, when he returns, he will pour out his wrath upon you justly. And so I implore you this evening, do not scorn Christ. Submit yourself to him. Worship him. Come. Adore him. Let us. Father, thank you for the gift of Christ crucified for our sins, raised for our justification, and patient with us. Patient with all his children, waiting that they might come to faith and be saved on the last day when all are raised from the dead. When every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory, Father. That Christmas is a declaration of war on evil. It's your declaration that Jesus is King. It is a light dawning in the darkness. And God, we ask that your light would shine upon our faces. Honored as king by all. For he alone is worthy. Let us adore him together. Amen.